How many of you are history buffs? You like history. Okay. How many of you are not history buffs and you dislike history? Okay. Here's the question of the day for you. In what room of the White House is the Declaration of Independence displayed? The rotunda. No, it's not in the White House at all. It's in the Capitol, but it is in the rotunda, I think, of the Capitol, not the White House. Okay. Ah, see, you learned something today. Now, wasn't that interesting? Now, what is the important part of history? Or why, why is history so important? You know? It tends to repeat itself, okay. Why else? Why is your personal history, why is your family history important? It's not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I would, I would disagree with that, but uh, here's one reason why history is so important. Because it helps us to know where we stand and what we stand on. There's two aspects of what we're going to talk about today. We've been in a series of taking action, and we're studying through the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is the church being formed and taking action. And we want to learn some lessons, and today we're going to come across a guy named Stephen. And Stephen stood for something, and he stood on something. And if we don't know our history, we don't know either of those two things. We don't know what we stand on, and we don't know what we stand for. I told you last week about that little episode on, on the news that I saw where a guy went out to Berkeley and he waved the American flag, and he was just belittled. I mean, the, the expletives that were used to describe how people felt about America was alarming, alarming. He said that five, five people were opposed to the United States for every one person that said, hey, I stand with the United States. Five to one on the college campuses of, of our state. And he also went out and he waved an ISIS flag you know, and said how opposed to the United States he was and how opposed to the democracy he was. And people applauded him and said, I appreciate you for standing up for what you believe. Now, why is that? Now, his conclusion was that they had been taught that by liberal education. My belief is that we don't know our history, therefore we don't know what we stand for, and we don't know what we stand on. And so if you look at the news very much, you find that, that history is trying to be rewritten today. I want you to know, history is trying to be rewritten. Uh, we no longer revere people, the statesmen that helped form our nation, you know, if they were slaveholders. They are not to be regarded whatsoever, okay? Even though they made some terrific contributions, lived in a time in which, uh, let's be honest, it wasn't the best uh, in attitude toward slaves and toward black people. But nonetheless, it was part of our history. And can we learn from our mistakes? Absolutely we can. So we shouldn't just write that out of history. But you see where monuments are being desecrated, monuments are being destroyed, uh, monuments are being voted off the property. And so we're trying to rewrite our history to make it more sanitary for us today. But when we do that, I fear that what's going to happen is we will no longer know what we stand on and we won't know what we stand for. Today we come to Stephen. And in Acts, the last part of chapter 6 and all through 7, we're going to find that he was, Stephen was a guy that stood for something. Uh, he had been arrested, he had been taken uh, prisoner, and was before the Sanhedrin. And he was a guy that was willing to stand for what he stood for to the point of death. 
Now, are there any people in your life that you know would give their life for what they stand for? Yeah, yeah, you might think so. You know, there, there's probably some out there that would stand for, for that to the point of death. But most people, if you say that, you know, do, what do you believe that you would be willing to die for? The list gets pretty small. The list gets pretty small. How many of you would die for your children? Okay, okay line up. Just, just kidding, just kidding. Uh, but, you know, we say that, and we would. I think that we would. How many of you would die for what you believe about Jesus? Okay, yeah, okay. I think, I think that, you know, I, I hope we never come to a point in time in our history where we're put to that test. However, I, believe, I prefer to be prepared for that time and know that uh, here's what I would do in that situation. Uh, I don't want to be left in a lurch and all of a sudden have to decide what am I going to do. I believe that the best course of action is to determine ahead of time what will my response be in certain situations. And so, therefore, that's one of those that I've thought about. And uh, I believe that I would, I would rather die than deny Christ. In Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 12, we're going to come upon Stephen. And let's just take a look at what it says. It says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Now, what kind of guy was he? Help me here. And, and today, I'm going to ask you to help me preach this sermon today, okay? So I'm going to ask you to give some feedback and give some input into what we're talking about here today. Okay, now what was Stephen? He was a man full of what? Grace and power. Those two things are not very common, are they? Grace and power. Usually people with power, they're not very gracious, are they? They exert their power so that they can have their way. And they're not gracious about that, but Stephen had an interesting combination of grace and power, and through that he performed many great signs and wonders among the people. Now opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue and of the freedom, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Now he's full of grace and power. And what's the third ingredient? Wisdom. He had some great wisdom. And, and is it hard to stand up against the wisdom of God? If you're opposed to it, it certainly is. And so therefore, he had that wisdom, and he was, there was opposition that arose to him. Uh, then secretly, uh, then they secretly persuaded some of the men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now, they conjure up this little episode here where people testify against him so that they can convict him. Have you ever had people kind of rise up against you, maybe in the workplace, uh, maybe in your family? Uh, maybe in your neighborhood. Uh, we used to live in a neighborhood where our next door neighbor, I mean, he was the parking policeman. You know, we had, we had four cars because we had four drivers in our household. So we parked two cars in the driveway and then two cars in front of our house. And he liked to park in front of our house. You know, and if we had all of our cars there, he couldn't park in front of our house because he also had several cars. And uh, he was a parking policeman. And it was, it was just really tough. It was really tough because he was very much opposed to us parking our cars on the street. Nothing like what Stephen experienced, however. Now, they conjure up all of this stuff against him so that they have uh, a case against him. In verse 12, so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Now, the next verses after that, we're going to discuss in particular about what Stephen stood on and what Stephen stood for. But at the end of the story, in verses 59 and 60 of chapter 7, 
It says this, while they were stoning him, okay, now he stood to the point of death. And I don't know if you've ever been stoned before. That didn't sound right. Uh, I know. And I'm sorry that you have to even ask what kind of stoned. Uh, but, but if you've ever had rocks thrown at you, you know, and, and you might have had a rock thrown at you once or twice. But think about this. He was pummeled to the point of death. And as he's being stoned, he, he says this. Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, which is a plight where he died. Okay? He died at the end of this. Now, do you think that between Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 12, and Acts 9 and 60, there was a way that Stephen maybe could have weaseled his way out of this? Oh, no, no. I didn't mean that. What I really meant was, you know, and maybe explain his way out of all of this serious criticism that's being proposed by the, the religious elite. But he shows us here, in the midst of those two things there, the, the beginning and the end, you know, the accus and the death, he shows us how and upon what we should stand. Now, I'm going to give you a, a, a one-word thing here, and that is history. We should stand on history. Now, when I mean the history of the United States, I don't mean the personal history of your family. What I mean is his story. His story. I hope that you have in, in the back of your mind this idea that it's not just the uh, accumulation of events that we have documented, but it is the history, his story, the story of God as he interacts with his creation. That's what, if we look at it from that perspective, we're going to learn some lessons. It's not just some circumstantial events that go on in our lives and in our world, but it's the story of God being revealed to the inhabitants of his creation. That's what his story is. That's why when something happens in our lifetime, we ought to think, what is God trying to say to us through this event? Whether it be a catastrophe, whether it be great abundance, whether it be a political scene, no matter what it is, what is God trying to say to us through this event? Because history is his story. So let's take a look at this. How to stand in the face of opposition. The number one thing and the primary thing is that we need to rely on God's faithfulness. When we look at history, it's really a story of God's faithfulness to his people in keeping his word. Do some bad things happen to the children of Israel? Yeah, Yeah, some bad stuff happens. So do we credit God with that? Yeah. God, and here's one of the things. In our lifetime, or in my lifetime, we've seen this thing about God, about Jesus, about religion, about the church, and it's all about God is love. God is love, right? And so if there's something that is kind of contrary to our perception of what love is, then that wasn't God. Okay, do you think, do you think that, uh, that Hitler was an instrument of God? Hmm. Think about that a little bit, because if he was not an instrument of God, then that means he operated beyond what God allowed him to do and beyond the sovereignty of God. Whatever happens in our world today is under the sovereign rulership of God, whether it be good for us or bad for us. I believe that God does things like that. He uses 
instruments, like maybe Hitler, to bring God's judgment upon a people who have turned their back on him. Now, why was it that Hitler was able to come to power? Because the people did not regard God highly. And do you think that God will give you what you want? He'll give you more than what you want sometimes. And we don't understand where our desires conflict with his wishes and where our desires really end up. And so if we get what we want, we'll always go farther from God than what we expected, if it's opposed to God. Now, most of us here in this room today, we want the things of God, right? And so therefore, that draws us to him. We want the things that are opposed to God. What will happen? It'll draw us away from him. We see that happen time and time again with the children of Israel. They want to be just like all the other people around them, right? They want to have a king, right? They want to have a king. Now, up to the point where they wanted a king, God had always been their king. He had led them. He had protected them. He had guided them. He had provided for them. And all of a sudden, they rise up and say, hey, we want a king. We want somebody to lead us out into battle and bring us home again, just like all of the other nations. Now, that's not what God wanted, was it? He didn't want them to have a king. He wanted to be their king. And he says, okay, if that's what you want, Bear in mind that when you get a king, here are the things that are going to happen. He's going to take 10% of your, of your he's going to take the tithe of your, of your crops. He's going to eat it at his table. He's going to take the, the best of your people, and he's going to make them his servants. He's going to take all this stuff that originally was intended to be God's, he's going to take it for him. Don't do this. No, no, we want a king. We want a king. We want to be alive, just like everybody else. We want to have a representative that will take us out into battle, protect us, and do all that stuff. God wanted to be that. But God let them have what they wanted, didn't he? Much to their detriment. The king comes in, and he takes possession of the land. He leads them. He does this. Pretty soon you see the nation of Israel worshiping foreign gods because they've infiltrated uh, all these new areas and they've adopted all these new people in the universe. Pretty soon their religion starts to waver. They start to wander from God. And God was sovereign over that. So if you looked at the nation of Israel, would you say, God let that happen? Yeah, God let it happen. People wanted. In our nation, yeah, as a nation, we're getting what we want. We want. So we have to be careful what we want. Now, Stephen, here he goes. We need to rely on the faithfulness of God because what is history? It's his story. In Acts chapter 7, verse 2, um, to this he replied. Now, what is he replying to? He's replying to that they stirred up the people, the elders, the teachers of the law, and seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is now going to interview him. And they say, hey, is all this true? Now, here's his response. To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. He goes all the way back to the origination of the nation of Israel. Now, before Abraham, there was no Israel, right? In fact, even during Abraham's time, it's not referred to as Israel, but he becomes the father of this great nation. Okay? Abraham has a son who is Abraham, Isaac. Isaac has a couple of sons who are Jacob and Esau. Okay? Now, whenever you see the... God being represented as the God of the nation of Israel, they will most generally refer to him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Whatever happened to Esau? Why isn't it Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and Esau? Because they're both brothers. Ah, you ask the question, I give you the answer. It's because Jacob uh, has Isaac and Esau. Esau was not the son of the promise. Jacob was the son of the 
promise, the covenant that was made with God to his people. And he says it to Abraham. He says, Abraham, out of you is going to come this great nation. This is the promise. They're going to have a land that they do not currently possess. They're going to be so numerous that they are going to multiply and you can't even count them. And thirdly, they're going to be a blessing to all the nations. Now, that didn't happen through Jacob uh, or through um, Esau, but it happened through Jacob. Okay, so he's the son of the promise. And as you read through the New Testament, you'll find references to that. And you'll go, wow, the promise, the promise, the promise. Well, the promise was all the way back to Abraham. And through him, Jacob becomes who? A man named Israel. Israel. And he has 12 sons. Okay, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so now he goes back to the beginning of this great nation of Israel. And he says, brothers, listen to me. The glory, God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Now, we're going to get to the next thing. Now, the next question we really have to ask is, how does Stephen comment to the Sanhedrin that God has been faithful, you know, and thusly something we can stand on? Well, here's four things I want you to jot down. Number one, God was faithful as a leader. He was faithful as a leader. And Stephen goes all the way back to Abraham here, and he says, you know, he, he was in Mesopotamia before he left Haran. And here's what God said to Abraham. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. He said, I'm going to lead you out of this place, and I'm going to take you to a new place. And, and what was the purpose for him to go there? Anybody? Okay, so, so that they could go occupy the land. But it didn't immediately become Abraham's, did it? No, in fact, he didn't get anything. He didn't get any land. He didn't really get any, any of this big promise of God. All he did was show that he trusted God by following. He trusted God by following. When you read in the book of Hebrews, you'll find it in Hebrews chapter 11, there's this great hall of fame, this faith hall of fame. And it says that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Now, what was the, what was the exposition of his faith? How did he express it? He just went. God said, go west, young man. And what did he do? He went west. Okay. And so therefore, God displays his faithfulness to us and to himself as a great leader. Now, here's where you get to participate in the sermon. This is going to be a little bit funky for those people that are listening by, by uh, the Internet, because they might not hear everything that you have to say. But how has God shown himself to be a leader in your life, maybe in our church, maybe in your experience? How has God shown himself to be a leader? Don't make me speak for you because I will. Okay. Okay, Nancy? Okay. Okay. And he, what, what does faithful mean? When we say God is faithful, what does it mean? Okay. He is always who he says he is. He will always do what he says he will do. Now, what are some of the things that God says he will do? He says he will love us. God is love, right? He says he will love us. Okay. We focus on that hugely, don't we? We love the fact that God loves us because we think that it kind of gives us permission to behave however we want. You know, because God loves me. God loves me. He would never punish me because God loves me. 
Okay, but let's go a little further into who God is. What else is God other than love? What, he is a God of what? Truth. Okay, and so he will guide us into all truth. In fact, he's given us the Holy Spirit of God to lead into all truth. Now, what is truth? Okay, let me ask it a little differently. What's true about us? Because the Bible is like a mirror. It holds itself up to us, and when we read it, what do we see? We see God revealed as he is, and we see us revealed as we are. Now, how are we revealed prior to coming to know Christ? Sinners. Yeah, now that's not a popular thing in our culture today, is it? Not at all. In fact, if you say somebody, they think you're what? You're judging them. Now, are we? (laughs) Okay, stating a fact, or we are giving God's evaluation of a situation. We'd say that. Uh, But what does judge, are we called to judge I knew we could divide the crowd quickly. You know, how many say, judge not lest ye be judged? Okay. Have you ever read the rest of that passage? Judge not lest ye be judged, because in the way you judge, you will be judged. Right after that, Jesus tells a story, doesn't he? Remember the story? It's the plank. It's the, it's the speck and the log. Okay. He says, if your brother has a log in his eye, Okay, has a log in it. And this is Hebrew humor. So if you think of a guy, you know, if you're a cartoon kind of thinker, you think of a guy with his big log sticking out of his eye. Kind of funny? Not really. Not really. And I always say that Hebrew humor is kind of like British humor. You know, you just, it just doesn't translate for us very well. But, but this guy's got a plank in his eye, a log. And what does Jesus say about that log in his eye? He says, don't ever talk about it. Don't ever touch it. Let him go on his way. Don't judge him. Is that what he says? No. What does he say? He says, first, before you take the log out of his eye, take, or or no, it's actually the opposite. Before you take the speck out of your brother's eye, take the log out of your eye. Okay. Now, what's the log that's in your eye? Sin, I'm going to say, I'm going to say it's your perception of what's wrong with your brother. Okay, you do that because you have self-esteem issues. You do that because you're a middle child. You do that because of, and so, you know, we have our reasons why they do it. What Jesus says is take those reasons out of your eye. Take that log out of your eye so that you can see clearly is what he says. So that you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He says, take the speck out, but see clearly. Now, how do we see clearly in that situation? We refer to the word of God. If they're violating the word of God, then you say, hey, look, I love you so much, and I don't want you to continue doing what you're doing. Check this out. Check this scripture out here where it says, blah, 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 blah. Okay? And we can... We can address their issue straight from the word of God, not from our own personal opinion. Because your personal opinion is what? A big fat log sticking out of your eye. Okay? That's what, that's what your personal opinion is. Don't judge by your personal opinion, but judge by the word of God. Okay, later on in the New Testament, I think it's in chapter something. Uh, chapter 8, I do believe. Toward the end of chapter 8, um, the Apostle Paul tells the church, he says, um, you know, what do I have to do with judging those people outside the church? 
The implication is nothing. You don't judge people outside the church, but you do judge people within the church. If they're living and behaving improperly, we need to lovingly help them correct those issues. So should we judge? Very carefully. Very, very carefully. Not by your own opinion, not by what you want to see happen, but by the Word of God. We need to make evaluation of that and love people enough to be able to correct them and be able to do that. Okay, so God is a... What? He's a loving God. He is a what kind of God? A truthful God. Okay, what else is he? Is he a God of judgment? Yeah. If we don't get that about God, you know, if we don't get that about God, man, we're going to be left in kind of a lurch because someday every one of us is going to stand before him and give an account of our life, right? Here's what I did. Here's why I did it. You know? Okay. So God's a God of judgment. Okay. Now, make sure that we haven't oversimplified God. Because if we just see God as a God of love, we've missed out on a lot of God. Okay. We've missed out on a lot of Him. So that's why I encourage you, when you read the Word, when you read the Word, see Him as a leader, Him as the full God that He is. And we've just mentioned a few things here today. Uh, but make sure that as you read, what does this passage reveal about God, who God is? What does it reveal about who I am? And how can we make those two things meet? Okay? How can we get together with God? Now, uh, how has God... Well, number two. Uh, and as Stephen goes through the history here, he talks about this thing of, of um, Abraham. Leave your country. Go to this place I'm going to show you because I'm going to start something new. And so I'm going to lead you to be able to do that. And, and Abraham follows. Number two, he reveals him as a provider. He goes on through the history of the nation of Israel and he gets down to the, to the place where this famine happens in Israel. Okay, they are without food. By this time, the, Jacob has become this nation of 12 sons. Okay, and Jacob is living at home and he sent his sons out. And remember the story of Joseph? Remember Joseph? He sends Joseph out there with his sons to go check out things. And what do, the brother, what do his brothers do to him? <laughs> they sell him. Actually, they want to kill him first uh, because they're so jealous because he has a special place with his dad because at that time, he's the youngest son. And the youngest sons always get the best deal. True? Any youngest sons here? I'm the youngest son. And I'll tell you what, I get the best deal. Okay? You know, I guess my mom got tired of reprimanding everybody and so by the time I come along, I get everything I want. Uh, but nonetheless... Uh, here we have uh, Joseph going out to check out his brothers. They, they virtually want to kill him. They throw him in a pit, and pretty soon one of the brothers said, no, no, let, we can't kill him. Let's sell him to these Ishmaelite traders. They're going off into Egypt. Let's just sell him, and we'll make a little profit. They come home. They show Dad the, the coat that Dad had made for him, and they've sprinkled some animal's blood on it and said, we don't know what happened to him. He must have gotten killed. Oh, and you can imagine Dad, uh, he's grieving. He's grieving over the loss of his youngest son. And uh, doesn't hear anything from him. Well, through the course of events, he goes off and he becomes second only to Pharaoh. Because Joseph is a smart guy. And he's, he's worked his way up through the ranks. And it's a tremendous story. If you've never read it, read it. A tremendous story how he works his way up through the ranks. He gets put in prison, works his way up through prison, becomes second in the, to the prison master there. And then he gets released from prison. He comes second to Pharaoh. And there's this famine that's affecting everything. Here's what Joseph says. He says, hey... Let's gather all the grain and put it in silos. And then we can distribute it as we have need. Oh, yeah, yeah, let's do that. For seven years they do that. And then they have this grain to distribute. Well, lo and behold, his brothers come. 
His brothers come and they're needing grain. And they don't even know who Joseph is, but he plays some tricks on them and makes them feel like they're stealing from the Pharaoh and, and maybe they're spies and who knows what. And they take food home. They come back, have to get more. And he says, oh, you know, he keeps one of their brothers. Anyway, it's a, it's a tremendous story, but make sure that you read it. But in verses 11 and 12 of Acts chapter 7, then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. They had several visits there. And, uh, and God foresaw. Now, in the end of all of this story, J- Joseph reveals to his brothers, he brings them all together, and they have dinner together. And they, they think that they're about to be busted, and they think they're going to prison for the rest of their lives. And, uh, and they're sitting in this little bank. Joseph tells them, I'm your brother Joseph. And when he says that, then they get even more scared because, because they think, oh, man, we did him wrong. We really did him wrong, and uh, we're about to pay for it. So they go through there trying to make amends. And at the end of it, Joseph says something remarkable. He says, you guys intended this for harm, but God intended this for good. God put me here so that I could provide for you. Now, have you ever been in a position where God provided something for you that was just incredible? Incredible. I remember one time we, were, uh, we went through a difficult time, and, and, uh, and I was without a job at the time. You know, I, I left the ministry. And there were people in my life that sacrificed tremendously so that we'd be financially able to, to make it through. That was one of the most incredible events in my life that uh, we could be able to, just out of the blue, I mean, huge gift, huge gift. And, uh, and I just thought, you know, those people that provided that for me heard God and responded with their love for me. And I prayed at that point, I said, I hope I get to a point. I hope I get to a point where I can do that for someone else. I hope I get to a point where somebody... And, and we have built this church uh, on providing the needs of people because as we've seen in, in the beginning part of Acts, how the church would gather stuff together, sell stuff, and, and distribute it to people who had need. And we have been a church that, you know, on a, at least our scale, has been able to do that. We've been able to do that. And I just think that God as a provider... Uh, is, is seen through the lives of people who are faithful to him. Anybody else have an experience like that? Or a, an experience where God provided for you? Might not be money. Okay, Nancy? And my car was dying. Uh-huh. It wouldn't pass logs. Mm-hmm. And my daughter and her husband got a nice car mm-hmm. last Christmas. Mm-hmm. I had a 92. They got me a 2000. Nice. It is excellent. Uh-huh. Uh-huh, uh-huh. God knows what we need, and he, he has avenues by which to provide it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, and I, mean, I think we need to get to that point where we see God's activity in our lives every day. Every morning when we wake up, we say, ah, God, God, God's got me. You know, I'm awake. I'm breathing. I remember Irving, when he was, went in the hospital one time, I'm going to share your story, Irving. Uh, he went in and he was having heart surgery and I went and visited him the day before they were going to take him to San Francisco and do it. And, and he says, you know, Pastor Mike, I, I worry that I'm not going to wake up. You know, 
and I don't know if you've ever had that worry, but I'm sure that many people in health issues have worried. I, I'm worried that I'm going to, you know, be sedated or whatever, and I'm not going to wake up. And I told Irving, I said, Irving, and, and he finally got this. He didn't, I don't know that he, that he got it at the time, but I said, Irving, you're going to wake up. I know that. You're going to wake up. And he did. He woke up the next day. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, is that when we have those kinds of fears, we're going to wake up, aren't we? We're either going to wake up here on earth or... Yeah. Okay. So God is a provider. He provides for us a, a lot of things. Uh, I remember when I had cancer, I thought, you know, gee, you know, who knows what could happen here? And, uh, and God provided me health. You know, and I, I've been cancer free for uh, however long it's been. I can't even remember. Okay, so God is a provider. He provides for us of the sustenance that we need. He provides friendships when we need it. He provides guidance when we need it. God is a provider. So when you have need, the first resort you have is to rely on God. Okay, number three, uh, God has been faithful as a preserver of life. Now, we go on here, and he goes through the, the history of the nation of Israel. It comes to Moses. Now, do you remember how Moses was born? Okay, he was born in Egypt, and Pharaoh had said what about, about male children? We want no more male children, so therefore you need to take your male children and do what? Kill them. Drown them in the river. Okay, so here, he goes on in verses 18 through 20. Then a new king whom Joseph, to whom Joseph meant nothing. Now remember, Joseph was, he was highly regarded by Pharaoh in Egypt. But time goes on. And what happens through the passage of time? We forget what? We forget the people that got us here. If you think about our history, that's what's happening to us today. We're forgetting about the people who got us here. Okay? In a good way. Those statesmen that sacrificed much for us so that we could have what we have. We're forgetting those guys. And we have no, uh, no personal association with them. So they're just you know, names in books, and we don't have any identification with them anymore. So therefore, we tend to forget them and forget their influence. And that's what happened here uh, in Egypt. So a new king comes to whom Joseph meant nothing. Uh, he came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. Okay, verse 20. At that time, Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. Remember what happened with Moses? He was, uh, he was nursed by his mother for about three months. And then she put him in this little wicker basket boat. And she put him in the Nile River and he floated down. And he's, you know, you could imagine that he was well fed at the time. So he's just kind of cooing and, you know, who knows, maybe messing his diapers, but whatever. He's floating down the river. And as he goes down the river, who happens to gaze upon him but Pharaoh's daughter? Oh, get that baby for me. And so he's raised in Pharaoh's household. Now, he pres God preserved Pharaoh's life because he was, you know, first of all, no ordinary child. But God had a purpose for him. Have you ever heard of stories about people who should have died but didn't? You know, Cindy is a story like that. My wife, uh, she was, when she was 15, she was hit by a car. She was hit by a car. She was crossing this major street. It was two lanes in each direction. And there was this overpass, and the overpass came down. It went over the freeway and came down, and her street was right down here, and there was a, a crosswalk. And she was going across the street with her friend, and uh, she was 15 years old, and this car came, never hit its brakes, 
until after it hit her. I think it knocked her 90 feet down the street and, and broke her back, broke her pelvis, broke her leg. Uh, and, and it was going about 35, 40 miles an hour when it hit her. And uh, she should have died. She should have died. But she didn't. You know, and you ask yourself the question, why? Well, I believe that she was no ordinary child. She was destined to be my wife, and she was destined to have a part of God's ministry. And God preserved her life for such a moment as that. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that yourself, or have known of someone who does, but I think that we all see stories in the news, maybe read them about on the internet, about people who have these horrific accidents and come out okay. God preserves life. Now, why does he preserve life? Because he has a purpose. He has a purpose. And part of this preservation of life, you'd have to say, if you were Moses, you would say, whoa, that was just no ordinary you know, child rearing that I got. Uh, there must be something special for me. And when God preserves life like that, we find that there's a new perspective that's given to these people, and they realize the value of life. Now, uh, on a smaller scale, when I went through cancer, I tell you, I, I was changed by that experience. I was truly changed. Uh, there's so much stuff that's different for me now. Um, uh, and I, the way I see life, the way I see the value that we have to the people around us, and, and just knowing, you know, and you say, well, I don't know if God preserved Mike's life or not, or whether it was just medicine or whatever. But nonetheless, whatever you see it as, is there's purpose now. There's much more purpose in people who go through experiences like that uh, that they perceive than people who just say, okay, it's another day. It's just the routine that goes on. So therefore, uh, God is a preserver of life. Next, the last one that I want to talk about today, and this doesn't exhaust the list about God's faithfulness, but uh, God has is, is been faithful to us as a patient promise keeper. Patient promise keeper. Have you ever thought that if you messed up with God that he'd just write you off? <laughs> you know, I think that many of us, though, at times in our lives have thought that. I mess up once and I'm written off. I am no good to God anymore. But I want you to take a look at Acts chapter 7, verse 34. Um, God sees uh, stuff. And it says here in Acts seven thirty-four, I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. And he's talking to Moses here. And what did Moses do? Moses thought, you know, once he got older, he thought, you know, I'm going to take charge here. I'm going to, I'm going to lead the people of Israel. I know I'm an, I'm an Israelite. I know I'm Jewish. And so, therefore, I'm going to go out there. And all the slaves in Egypt at that time, he went out there to kind of rally them. And uh, they didn't think very highly of Moses. And he went out there and he says, you know, you guys, uh, you know, let's rally together. Let's rally together. And uh, he got in a fight and he killed this guy. He killed this uh, uh, Egyptian guard. And he killed him. And then he goes back to the people and they say, you know, wants to lead them. They say, well, who, why should we follow you? Look what you did. You know, and he's trying to break up this fight among these two Israelite guys. And he says, hey, you know, quit fighting, quit fighting. Why should we listen to you? You just killed that guy yesterday. And so what does he do in response to that? He leaves and he goes to Midian and he lives out there and he becomes a shepherd. And he says, oh, I am of no value. I'm of no use to God because look what I did. Look what I did. And I messed up. And so I'm just going to go hide in the, in the shadows. And so God comes to him there in the shadows of Midian. And he says, I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. Now, they were being oppressed. They had to make bricks without straw. They had to get their own straw. They had to take all this stuff. They had to still maintain their same quota. And the Pharaoh was just really harsh and hard on them. And 
so God comes to him there in Midian. He says, I've seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. I have come down to set them free. Now, if I'm Moses, I'm thinking at this point, cool. You know, I don't have to go back there. God's come down to set them free. But he finishes here with the last sentence. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. (laughs) Bummer. You know, now I have to go back. But God didn't give up on Moses. He knew at at the beginning of time. In fact, when he was talking to Abraham, he said, there's going to be a period of time, 400 years, where my people are going to go into captivity. And he's talking about this episode in Egypt. He says, but I'm going to come and I'm going to rescue them. That was told all the way back at the time of Abraham. And now Moses comes hundreds of years later. Here's Moses. And God says, you're the guy. I'm going to keep my promise back here. In fact, I had you positioned there. You know, you were right in Pharaoh's court and then you ran away. But now I've come to get you. I'm going to lead you back. Now, come on, stick with the program. We're going to get the job done. I'm going to get the job done and I'm going to use you to do it. So he's faithful to him. And he was a faithful, patient promise keeper. So many times we think that when we run away from God, God says, whoop, okay, I'll go find somebody else. You know, but God is patient with us. Many times he says, okay, let you go wander, go do your thing. Now come on back, come on back. And I don't know if any of you have had that experience in life. I see nods all over. So tell me about it. How many of you have ever wandered? Okay, yeah, we probably have all wandered. How did we find our way back? Repented? Okay, that's all good churches. But tell me about it. Tell me about how that's to happen, I Bill. Just, I keep seeing God right in front of me. Yeah. And he's always there. You know, it's that faith. So uh-huh. It's like he hasn't turned his back. Uh-huh. He's still there waiting for me. Uh-huh, yeah. And I always tell people, you know, they say, you know, I feel like God has left me. I said, no, no, God never leaves you. He says he will never leave you nor forsake you. But you might leave him. Yes. So I would encourage you to go back to where you left him, and you'll find him. Go back right to where you left him, and you will find him. In Acts chapter 7, verses 39 and 40, uh, another episode of God's faithfulness. And, and the children of Israel, they get really out of whack uh, in their history. God takes them into uh, captivity with the Assyrians and the Babylonians and all of that stuff. Um, and so Stephen's recounting that portion of history in verses 39 and 40. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. If you remember that story, uh, Moses goes up on the mountain to, to talk with God. And as he's gone, you know, the children of Israel, they get Aaron, you know, his brother, and they say, hey, Aaron, make for us this golden idol. And he says, okay, well, take your earrings off and take your necklaces and throw them in this pot. We'll burn them up, you know. We'll melt this gold. We'll fashion this thing. And this golden calf came out, you know. And all of a sudden, they're saying, oh, yeah, now we have a God that we can focus on. Because this guy, Moses, we don't know where he is. He hasn't come back. And he's been gone for 38 days. And so, well, he's gone. And and pretty soon, Moses comes back. And he calls it, I love this part of the story. He calls Moses, or he calls Aaron aside and he says, what in the world is this? And Aaron says something to the effect, man, I don't know. We just threw a bunch of stuff in this cauldron and out jumped this golden calf. Really? No, you fashioned that thing. When I see something that's been made, I know that there's a maker out there. Dude, you're it. And so, you know, as much as he tries to get out, but what happened to the people of Israel when they turned their backs on God? Right here. What happened to them? Ah, they walked away from him. But did God leave them there? No. 
knew. Remember when they were getting ready to go into the promised land? All of a sudden Moses had died and Joshua was getting ready to take him into the promised land. Oh, no, no, way back earlier, at the beginning of the journey, uh, Moses is getting ready to take him into the promised land. Probably an 11-day walk from Egypt, 11-day walk. And uh, they get ready, they send out some spies and they spy out the land. And oh yeah, it's just like God said. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Check out these grapes, check out this stuff. Man, you won't believe the land. And so they had their little business meeting. They get all 12 of the guys together and they say, okay, let's vote. Should we go or should we not? Now, God has already told them to go, right? He has rescued them from Egypt and he's told them to go into the promised land. Why take a vote? I don't know. We've got to get the consensus of the people. You know, you can't go where they won't go. And so God got outvoted in that meeting 10 to 2. As a result of that, as a result of that, Moses says, okay, God is going to punish us. We're going to wander in this desert for 40 years. 40 years until this unbelieving generation dies off. Now, God didn't give up on them, did he? He gave up on that generation and surely they, they, they did die off, and then they were able to go into the promised land. God was faithful and patient in his promise that a dying generation had to, or an unbelieving generation had to die off first. Now, what was, what was your response right after that business meeting? Oh, we didn't mean that. You know, after the announcement of judgment comes, you know, here it is. We're going to wander in the desert. Oh, no, we didn't mean that. Oh, yeah, we'll go now. In fact, some of the guys even packed up and started running off. And they were going to go. They were going to go occupy the land. And, and Moses says, no, don't even bother. You're going to get killed. You're going to get killed. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And nonetheless, people would still try to do that. Uh, but now, God is patient in keeping his promises. Because God has a plan. And it's not a plan for our lifetime. God has a plan for all of lifetime. Okay? All of, of eternity. He has a plan. And he's going to accomplish that plan And he is faithful to do it. He is a faithful promise keeper. So when God says to you, he makes a promise to you, remember, it may not happen right now, but it will happen because God is faithful to keep his word. Now, what's our response to all of this faithfulness of God? Okay, here we find in Stephen's life how he was faithful. And he really concludes his story about the history of the nation of Israel with this. And and here's what our takeaway is. Our thing to do is to construct a place for him to live. We need to construct a place for him to live. And Stephen talks about how they built a tabernacle, okay, when they were wandering in the wilderness. They built a tabernacle so that they could come there and meet with God. And then uh, David wants to build a temple, but no, David doesn't get to do that, but his son Solomon does. They were concerned for giving God a place to live. Now, notice in verses 45 through 50, Here's Stephen talking to the Sanhedrin. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house are you to build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Why are you going to build a place for me? Now, if you read through the New Testament, you find that God dwells where? 
in the lives of his people. In the lives of his people. And he is omnipresent. He dwells everywhere. But he lives and is manifest in the lives of his people. So my question to you is, what kind of house are you going to build for him to live in? Are you going to build a house of faithfulness that relies on him and trusts him and would be willing to die for his cause if called upon to do so? Or are you going to say, you know, this is all just pretty circumstantial stuff. And I'm going to just keep going and bumping along life the way that I've always bumped along in life. My prayer is that you would build a house for him to dwell in. And that house would be your heart. That innermost part of you that is devoted completely and totally to God, which causes then the rest of your life to be lived out completely and totally dedicated to him.